My dearly beloved brethren and sisters, what a magnificent sight you are! This vast congregation of Latter-day Saints gathered together in this new and wonderful hall. The organ is not completed, and there are various construction details yet to be attended to. But fortunately, the work is far enough along that we are able to use it for this conference. A year or so ago, in speaking concerning it, I expressed the opinion that we may not be able to fill it initially. It seats three three and a half times the capacity of the tabernacle. But already we're in trouble. People are filling all of the seats. During the four general sessions and the priesthood session, we will be able to accommodate about 100,000. We had requests for 370,000 tickets. The tabernacle and assembly hall will serve as overflow. But with all of this, many, very many, will be disappointed. We apologize. We ask for your forgiveness. We're powerless to do anything about it. So many wanted to attend this first conference in the new hall. Unfortunately, that is impossible. I was somewhat shocked to learn that the people from my own ward who are nearby and whom I love have received no tickets. (laughs) But we're grateful for the enthusiasm of the Latter-day Saints concerning this new meeting place. I hope that enthusiasm will continue and that we shall have a full house at every conference in the future. This is the newest in a series of meeting places constructed by our people. When first they came to this valley, they built a bowery. It shaded them from the sun, but provided no warmth and very little comfort. Then they built the old tabernacle. That was followed by the new tabernacle, which has served us so very well for more than 130 years. Now, in this historic season, when we mark the birth of a new century and the beginning of a new millennium, we have built this new and wonderful conference center. Each of the undertakings of the past was a bold venture, and particularly the tabernacle. It was unique in its design. No one had constructed a building like that before. It is still unique. What a wonderful hall it has been and will continue to be. It will go on living, for I believe that buildings have lives of their own. It will go on serving long into the unforeseeable future. The building of this structure has been a bold undertaking. We worried about it. We prayed about it. We listened for the whisperings of the Spirit concerning it. And only when we felt the confirming voice of the Lord did we determine to go forward. At the General Conference of April 1996, I said, I regret that many who wish to meet with us in the tabernacle this morning are unable to get in. There are very many out on the grounds. This unique and remarkable hall built by our pioneer forebears and dedicated to the worship of the Lord, comfortably seats about 6,000. Some of you seated on those hard benches for two hours may question the word comfortably. (laughs) 
My heart reaches out to those who wish to get in and could not be accommodated. About a year ago, we suggested to the brethren that perhaps the time has come when we should study the feasibility of constructing another dedicated house of worship on a much larger scale that would accommodate three or four times the number who can be seated in this building. The vision of a new hall was clearly in mind. Various architectural schemes were studied. One was finally selected. It included a massive structure to seat 21,000 with a theater accommodating another thousand. There would be no interior pillars to obstruct the view of the speaker. There would be trees and running water on the roof. Ground was broken July 24, 1997, the 150th anniversary of the arrival of the first pioneers in this valley. That was an historic event. We did not know it at the time, but in 1853, Brigham Young, in speaking of Temple, said, The time will come when we shall build on the top groves and fish ponds. In 1924, Elder James E. Talmadge of the Council of the Twelve wrote, I have long seen the possible erection of a great pavilion on the north side of the tabernacle, seating perhaps 20,000 people, or even double that number, with amplifiers capable of making all hear the addresses given from the tabernacle stands. And in addition to this, a connection with the broadcasting system, with receivers in the several chapels or other meeting houses throughout the Intermountain region. In 1940, the First Presidency and the Twelve had their architect draw up a plan of a building that would seat 19,000 and would stand where this building stands. That was 60 years ago. They thought about it. They talked about it, but finally they dropped the idea entirely. These statements and actions were wonderfully prophetic. We knew nothing about them when we thought of this. All of them have come to our attention since we began this construction. We have not built a temple with trees and fish ponds on the roof, but on this edifice we have many trees and running water. Brigham Young may have foreseen this structure very near the temple. We've thought what Brother Talmadge thought of and much, much more. These services will not only be heard by all who are seated in the conference center, they will be carried by radio, television, and cable, and they will be transmitted by satellite to Europe, to Mexico, to South America. We reach far beyond the Intermountain area of which Brother Talmadge spoke. We reach beyond the confines of the United States and Canada. We essentially reach across the world. This is truly a magnificent building. I know of no other comparable structure built primarily as a hall of worship that is so large and that will seat so many. It is beautiful in its design, in its appointments, and in its wonderful utility. It is built of reinforced concrete. 
to the highest seismic codes required in this area. <clears throat> the concrete is faced with granite, taken from the same quarry as was the stone for the temple. Both buildings even carry the blemishes of that granite. The interior is beautiful and wonderfully impressive. It is huge, and it is constructed in such a way that nothing obstructs the view of the speaker. The carpets, the marble floors, the decorated walls, the handsome hardware, the wonderful wood all bespeak utility with a touch of elegance. It will prove to be a great addition to this city. Not only will our general conferences be held here and some other religious meetings, but it will serve as a cultural center for the very best artistic presentations. We hope that those not of our faith will come here, experience the ambience of this beautiful place, and feel grateful for its presence. We thank all who have worked so hard to bring it to this stage, the architects with whom we have had many meetings, the general contractors, three of whom have worked together, the subcontractors, and the hundreds of craftsmen who have labored here, the construction supervisor, the city building inspectors, and everyone who's had a hand in this project. They have all joined in a Herculean effort so that we might meet together this morning. Many of them are with us, I am happy to say. And now, my brothers and sisters, I would like to tell you about another feature of this wonderful building. If I get a little personal and even a little sentimental, I hope you'll forgive me. I love trees. When I was a boy, we lived on a farm in the summer, a fruit farm. Every year at this season, we planted trees. I think I've never missed a spring since I was married except for two, th two or three years when we were absent from the city, that I have not planted trees, at least one or two fruit trees, shade trees, ornamental trees, and spruce, fern, pine among the conifers. I love trees. Well, some 36 years ago, I planted a black walnut. It was in a crowded area where it grew straight and tall to get the sunlight. A year ago, for some reason, it died. But walnut is a precious furniture wood. I called Brother Ben Banks of the Seventy, who, before giving his full time to the Church, was in the business of hardwood lumber. He brought his two sons, one a bishop and the other recently released as a bishop, and who now run the business to look at the tree. From all they could tell, it was solid, good, and beautiful wood. One of them suggested that it would make a pulpit for this hall. The ivy excited me. The tree was cut down and then cut into two heavy logs. Then followed the long process of drying, first naturally and then kiln drying. The logs were cut into boards at a sawmill in Salem, Utah. The boards were then taken to Fetzer's woodworking plant, where expert craftsmen designed and built this magnificent pulpit with that wood. The end product is beautiful. I wish all of you could examine it closely.
It represents superb workmanship. And here I am, speaking to you from the tree I grew in my backyard where my children played and also grew. <laughs> it is an emotional thing for me. Uh, I have planted another black walnut or two. <laughs> I will be long gone before they mature. When that day comes and this beautiful pulpit has grown old, perhaps one of them will do to make a replacement. To Elder Banks and his sons, Ben and Bradley, and to the skilled workers who have designed and built this, I offer my profound thanks for making it possible to have a small touch of mine in this great hall where the voices of prophets will go out to all the world in testimony of the Redeemer of mankind. And so to all who have made this sacred edifice possible, and to all of you who are here assembled on this historic occasion, I express gratitude and appreciation, my love and my thanks for this day and this sacred and beautiful house of worship. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The book of Job poses the universal question, If a man die, shall he live again? The question of resurrection from the dead is a central subject of Scripture, ancient and modern. The resurrection is a pillar of our faith. It adds meaning to our doctrine, motivation to our behavior, and hope for our future. The universal resurrection became a reality with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the third day after his death and burial, Jesus came forth out of the tomb. He appeared to several men and women and then to the assembled apostles. Three of the Gospels describe this event. Luke is the most complete. Jesus saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Then opened he their understanding. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. The Savior gave the apostles a second witness. Thomas, one of the twelve, had not been with them when Jesus came. He insisted that he would not believe unless he could see and feel for himself. John records, And after eight days, again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. 
Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Despite these biblical witnesses, many who call themselves Christians reject or confess serious doubts about the reality of the resurrection. As if to anticipate and counter such doubts, the Bible records many appearances of the risen Christ. In some of these, he appeared to a single individual, such as to Mary Magdalene at the sepulcher. In others, he appeared to large or small groups, such as when he was seen of about 500 brethren at once. The Book of Mormon, another witness, another testament of Jesus Christ, records the experience of hundreds who saw the risen Lord in person and touched him, feeling the prints of the nails in his hands and feet and thrusting their hands into his side. The Savior invited a multitude to have this experience, one by one, so that they could know that he was the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth and had been slain for the sins of the world. During the course of his personal ministry among these faithful people, the resurrected Christ healed the sick and also took their little children one by one and blessed them. This tender episode was witnessed by about 2,500 men, women, and children. The possibility that a mortal who has died will be brought forth and live again in a resurrected body has awakened hope and stirred controversy through much of recorded history. Relying on clear scriptural teachings, Latter-day Saints join in affirming that Christ has broken the bands of death and that death is swallowed up in victory. Because we believe the Bible and Book of Mormon descriptions of the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, we also readily accept the numerous scriptural teachings that a similar resurrection will come to all mortals who have ever lived upon this earth. As Jesus taught, because I live, ye shall live also. The literal and universal nature of the resurrection is vividly described in the Book of Mormon. The prophet Amulek taught, The death of Christ shall loose the bands of this temporal death, that all shall be raised from this temporal death. The spirit and the body shall be reunited again in its perfect form, 
Both limb and joint shall be restored to its proper frame, even as we now are at this time. Now this restoration shall come to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, both the wicked and the righteous. And even there shall not so much as a hair of their heads be lost, but everything shall be restored to its perfect frame. Alma also taught that in the resurrection all things shall be restored to their proper and perfect frame. Many living witnesses can testify to the literal fulfillment of these scriptural assurances of the resurrection. Many, including some in my own extended family, have seen a departed loved one in vision or personal appearance and have witnessed their restoration in their proper and perfect frame in the prime of life. Whether these were manifestations of persons already resurrected or of righteous spirits awaiting an assured resurrection, the reality and nature of the resurrection of mortals is evident. What a comfort to know that all who have been disadvantaged in life from birth defects, from mortal injuries, from disease, or from the natural deterioration of old age will be resurrected in proper and perfect frame. I wonder if we fully appreciate the enormous significance of our belief in a literal, universal resurrection. The assurance of immortality is fundamental to our faith. The Prophet Joseph Smith declared, The fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died was buried and rose again the third day and ascended into heaven, and all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it." End of, quote. of all things in that glorious ministry, why did the Prophet Joseph Smith use the testimony of the Savior's death, burial, and resurrection as the fundamental principle of our religion, saying that all other things are only appendages to it? The answer is found in the fact that the Savior's resurrection is central to what the prophets have called the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. In our eternal journey, the resurrection is the mighty milepost that signifies the end of mortality and the beginning of immortality. The Lord described the importance of this vital transition when he declared, And thus did I, the Lord God, appoint unto man the days of his probation, that by his natural death he might be raised in immortality unto eternal life, even as many as would believe. Similarly, the Book of Mormon teaches, For as death hath passed upon all men, 
To fulfill the merciful plan of the great Creator, there must needs be a power of the resurrection. We also know from modern revelation that without the reuniting of our spirits and our bodies in the resurrection, we could not receive a fullness of joy. When we understand the vital position of the resurrection in the plan of redemption that governs our eternal journey, we see why the Apostle Paul taught, If there be no resurrection of the dead, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. We also see why the Apostle Peter referred to the fact that God the Father, in His abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The lively hope we are given by the resurrection is our conviction that death is not the conclusion of our identity, but merely a necessary step in the destined transition from mortality to immortality. This hope changes the whole perspective of mortal life. The assurance of resurrection and immortality affects how we look on the physical challenges of mortality, how we live our mortal lives, and how we relate to those around us. The assurance of resurrection gives us the strength and perspective to endure the mortal challenges faced by each of us and by those we love, such things as the physical, mental, or emotional deficiencies we bring with us at birth or acquire during mortal life. Because of the resurrection, we know that these mortal deficiencies are only temporary. The assurance of resurrection also gives us a powerful incentive to keep the commandments of God during our mortal lives. Resurrection is much more than merely reuniting a spirit to a body held captive by the grave. We know from the Book of Mormon that the resurrection is a restoration that brings back carnal for carnal and good for that which is good. The prophet Amulek taught, that same spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time that ye go out of this life, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in that eternal world. As a result, when persons leave this life and go on to the next, they who are righteous shall be righteous still. And whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life will rise with us in the resurrection. The principle of restoration also means that persons who are not righteous in mortal life will not rise up righteous in the resurrection. Moreover, unless our mortal sins have been cleansed and blotted out by repentance and forgiveness, we will be resurrected with a bright recollection and a perfect knowledge of all of our guilt and our uncleanness. The seriousness of that reality is emphasized by the many scriptures suggesting that the resurrection is followed immediately by the final judgment. Truly, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. 
The assurance that the resurrection will include an opportunity to be with our family members, husband, wife, parents, brothers and sisters, children and grandchildren, is a powerful encouragement for us to fulfill our family responsibilities in mortality. It helps us live together in love in this life in anticipation of joyful reunions and associations in the next. Our sure knowledge of a resurrection to immortality also gives us the courage to face our own death, even a death that we might call premature. Thus, the people of Ammon in the Book of Mormon never did look upon death with any degree of terror for their hope and views of Christ and the resurrection. Therefore, death was swallowed up to them by the victory of Christ over it. The assurance of immortality also helps us bear the mortal separations involved in the death of our loved ones. Every one of us has wept at a death, grieved through a funeral, or stood in pain at a graveside. I am surely one who has. We should all praise God for the assured resurrection that makes our mortal separations temporary and gives us the hope and strength to carry on. We are living in a glorious season of temple building. This is also a consequence of our faith in the resurrection. Just a few months ago, I was privileged to accompany President Hinckley to the dedication of a new temple. In that sacred setting, I heard him say, quote, Temples stand as a witness of our conviction of immortality. Our temples are concerned with life beyond the grave. For example, there is no need for marriage in the temple if we were only concerned with being married for the period of our mortal lives. End of quote. This prophetic teaching enlarged my understanding. Our temples are living, working testimonies to our faith in the reality of the resurrection. They provide the sacred settings where living proxies can perform all of the necessary ordinances of mortal life in behalf of those who live in the world of the spirits. None of this would be meaningful if we did not have the assurance of universal immortality and the opportunity for eternal life because of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We believe in the literal, universal resurrection of all mankind because of the resurrection of the Holy One of Israel. We also testify of the living Christ. As was said in the recent apostolic declaration of that same name, we solemnly testify that His life, which is central to all human history, neither began in Bethlehem nor concluded on Calvary. We bear witness as his duly ordained apostles that Jesus Christ is the living Christ, the immortal Son of God. He is the great King Emmanuel who stands today on the right hand of his Father. He is the light, the life, and the hope of the world. His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. I testify of that reality 
and of the reality of his resurrection and ours. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Children love stories. As a child, I was immediately drawn to the stories that started with the words, Once Upon a Time. These stories often ended with, They lived happily ever after. I have a feeling that children are not the only ones who are intrigued by those phrases. We each long to have the Once Upon a Time of our lives filled with so much happiness that it becomes the happily ever after of our hopes and our dreams. We are living in our once upon a time. We are experiencing a mortal probation now during our turn on earth. In our pre-mortal existence, all the sons of God shouted for joy as we accepted the great plan of happiness. We happily anticipated coming to earth to experience opportunities to grow spiritually. Men are that they might have joy. The opportunity is here and now to obtain happiness that extends beyond our earth life. However, we need to know what it is and where to find it. In the Book of Mormon, Lehi explained to his son Jacob that happiness is a result of obedience. He told Jacob that eternal laws have both punishments and opportunities for happiness attached to them. When we disobey God's laws, we suffer the punishments. But when we obey, we reap the happiness. Part of what creates happiness is the absence of regret, guilt, and sin. The prophet Joseph Smith taught, Happiness is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. This path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all the commandments of God. A young friend named Emily discovered this for herself. Emily did not yet have a testimony of the gospel and was contemplating whether to remain active in the Church or try to find happiness elsewhere. As she searched for answers, she began to notice that the people and families around her who were the happiest were the ones who were active in the Church. After that discovery, she determined that even if she didn't yet have a complete testimony of the, of the truthfulness of the gospel, she wanted to be part of something that helped people to be so happy. The word gospel means good news, and as Emily discovered, the good news is that the gospel can make us very happy. But you may be thinking, even within the Church there are people who aren't happy or people who are usually happy but who experience intermittent times of stress, worry, challenge, and discouragement. That, too, is part of the great plan of happiness. Mortality is a time of testing and trial, which means that there must be times when we feel pain and emotional discomfort. However, 
by patiently trusting in the eternal plan, we can experience daily happiness and have hope for ever-after happiness. Elder Boyd K. Packer explained, It was meant to be that life would be a challenge, to suffer some anxiety, some depression, some disappointment, and even some failure is normal. Teach our members if they have a good, miserable day once in a while or several in a row to stand steady and face them. Things will straighten out. There is great purpose in our struggle in life. The story of our search for happiness is written in such a way that if we continue to trust in God and follow His commandments through the challenging times, even those times will bring us closer to the happiness we are seeking. The Savior said, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The Savior, Jesus Christ, showed us the way to happiness and told us everything we need to do to be happy. As we study the teachings of the Savior and thereby understand the purpose of our existence, we feel and express our happiness. In the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord said through Joseph Smith that we should worship Him with a glad heart and a cheerful countenance. We can experience a speedier and more sure course to our ever-after happiness by developing certain habits and attitudes that encourage happiness. Our prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, is the very essence of a glad heart. He has written, I am an optimist. My plea is that we stop seeking out the storms and enjoy more fully the sunlight. I am suggesting that as we go through life, we accentuate the positive. Children are usually a good example of attitudes of a glad heart and a cheerful countenance. They have a sense of happiness and optimism that invites others to rejoice with them. My husband and I took our grandson to lunch for his fourth birthday. After lunch, we buckled him in the back seat for the drive home. In the front seat, we began to discuss the schedule of the day. But I heard this four-year-old talking to himself. He was saying over and over, I am such a lucky boy. I am such a lucky boy. He was expressing his joy for anyone who would listen. We can learn how simple joy can be from these little ones. I'd like to share some comments from primary children that teach us what happiness is and where we can find it. One child observed, Happiness looks like a smile that you can see in people's eyes so that you know they really are happy. This child knows that happiness is as simple as a smile. Recently, I stopped at a grocery store to pick up just a few things for dinner, and as I turned the corner, I came face to face with an older gentleman. I smiled as I was relieved that we hadn't collided. He smiled and said, Thank you for your smile. I needed it. I also needed his smile. Smile, it will make a difference for you and for others. What would life be like if we couldn't give and receive smiles? Happiness is not only simple, 
but it is here for us to experience each day. Happiness is all around us, and it can be as immediate as now. Some children said, Happiness is a big word with flowers all around it. Another said, It looks like a rainbow. It looks like the sun. We need to remember that despite all of life's challenges, our time to be happy is now. A few months ago, I had an opportunity to take a morning walk on a mountain trail with four of my grandchildren. We each brought a small bag so that we could collect treasures from nature. As we looked for pieces to put in our collection, we found many different colors, designs, and textures in the leaves and the rocks. It was hard to choose. I soon noticed, though, that the children's bags were filling up. Each leaf that the children selected was unique, but because it was late fall, most of the leaves had dark weathered spots, irregular shapes, or faded and discolored parts. Because of this, I was reluctant to add things to my bag. I was looking for the leaf that showed the brightest colors and had no flaws. If it wasn't perfect, I wasn't going to treasure it. But this meant that my bag had very little in it. Later, as I thought about this experience, I realized that I had cheated myself of much delight and happiness that could have been mine. I didn't appreciate the uniqueness of the objects because I was looking for what I deemed perfection. My grandchildren had been wiser than I had been. They had savored the odd shapes and spots on the leaves. They giggled at and enjoyed the brittle crispness of the drying leaves, and they delighted in the soft, faded colors. They filled their bags with happy treasures to take home. We can fail to see and enjoy the unique happiness and beauty in each day if we are so focused on our desire for what we want instead of what the Lord has designed for us. Happiness is knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One child said, Happiness looks peaceful like Jesus and Heavenly Father. Recently, I attended a primary and was holding a 14-month-old child on my lap. When she looked up and saw a picture of the Savior on the wall, her little face beamed as she said with her newly acquired language skills, Jesus. Perhaps this little one understands the joy of knowing the Savior. It is knowing and feeling the pure love of Christ that brings exquisite joy to our souls. It is knowing that forgiveness for our mistakes is possible. It is through the atonement of the Savior who satisfied the demands of justice and offers us mercy that hope and joy are possible. As we draw near to the Savior, we are free from doubt and confusion. Elder Richard G. Scott said, Your joy in life depends upon your trust in Heavenly Father and His Holy Son, your conviction that their plan of happiness truly can bring you joy. Through the Savior, we can find our way back to God. We can find peace and happiness in this life and eternal joy in the world to come. That thought in and of itself warms my heart and makes me smile. As we come to understand the great plan of happiness, we will radiate for all the world to see a glad heart and a cheerful countenance.
we will show that we know the gospel of Jesus Christ is a simple, ever-present source of true happiness today and ever after in eternity. It is living the gospel of Jesus Christ that is our guarantee of living happily ever after. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. During the last General Conference, a relatively insignificant thing caught my attention. It was a necktie. As a choir of young boys and girls was singing, one of the TV cameras happened upon a young boy in the choir. He thought he saw himself on the television monitor, but perhaps wasn't completely sure. So this is what he did. <laughs> By wiggling his tie almost unnoticeably, he knew, yes, it was really him. This modest act triggered a flood of thoughts in my mind. Turning to look at those young boys and girls, I thought, these children represent millions of similar boys and girls throughout the world. What will this great Church be like when they reach the ages of the leaders here? And what part will they play in its remarkable future? Which children will hold ward or stake positions? Might a future member of the Twelve be listening to the conference? or even seated here today, which young boy will someday preside as president of the Church when it has many more millions of members? As these thoughts continued in my mind, I realized that young people will need to learn so many lessons. You'll have to prepare your awesome responsibilities in a time when the adversary seems to go unchecked by the world in his opposition to all that is good and decent. You will need to learn many lessons, but let me share three lessons that I believe are essential. The first essential lesson is to develop a sense of respect for things that are sacred and a respect for other people, especially your elders. The Lord taught Moses about sacred things and places. When Moses approached the burning bush that was not consumed by fire, the Lord commanded, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. We too have the opportunity to stand in holy places—temples, church buildings, and your home should command your respect because they are sacred. You will need to recognize and value all that the Lord has revealed as being sacred. One of the most significant is the sacred nature of your own body. The Apostle Paul spoke of our bodies as temples given to us from God. What a tragedy! If you deprived yourself of life's opportunities 
by willfully disfiguring your body or numbing your mind with drugs. Don't use your body for immoral acts. Clothe it modestly and leave the sloppy dress craze behind. When you have the courage to dress modestly and avoid the fads in clothing, you'll find that self-esteem is a companion of obedience and that the Lord will help you. How we act and dress reflect how we regard where we are and who we are. Let me demonstrate. One of the natural occurrences in missionary work is the change in new converts, especially little boys, young men, and fathers. When they go to church meetings, they want to look like the missionaries. Now that tells us a lot about the importance of looking like a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The words of the prophets as found in ancient scripture and in modern-day revelation are sacred also. They are the words of the Lord to us. Treat them with respect by listening carefully and then conforming your lives to them. I urge you young people to develop the habit of always showing respect and courtesy and deference to your parents and others, and especially those who are older than you. My father taught me that every person in and out of the Church has a title, such as Mr., Mrs., Brother or Sister, Bishop, Elder, or President and that they should be addressed with respect. When I was six years old, my father reinforced this principle when I made the horrid mistake of calling our local grocer by his first name. Upon leaving the grocery store, my father taught me with firmness that I had shown a lack of respect by being so casual to an older person. I have never forgotten that experience, and nor have I, after sixty years, forgotten the name of the grocer. I even remember his first name. <clears throat> the second essential lesson is to learn the commandments and obey them because you choose to. Before you can obey the commandments, you must know what they are. You learn the commandments by being instructed. That is why family home evening, Sunday classes, and seminary are so important. You know the commandments by the Spirit, through prayer, your own personal study, and by your own personal revelation. You need to keep your minds clean so you can recognize and respond to the quiet whisperings of the Spirit. Select with care the information you allow to enter into your mind. Avoid the cluttered clamor of the world. Television, movies, and especially the Internet can provide an open window through which you can peer into the far reaches of the world. They can bring to you information that is uplifting, good, and inspiring. But 
If used improperly, these media technologies can fill your mind with such unwholesome thoughts that you will be unable to hear the gentle promptings of the Spirit. Live each day so that you are able to be in tune with the Spirit, like the boy prophet Samuel, and you are able to respond to the Lord and say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. A third essential lesson is to develop a love for the Savior. Knowing about the Savior is a natural part of our religious education. Knowing the Savior requires personal obedience, prayer, and a closeness to the Spirit and revelation. I want to speak to you teachers for a moment, you parents, priesthood leaders, bishops, stake presidents, and teachers in primary, young women, young men, and Sunday school. The Lord has reminded everyone that the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. We are all responsible to teach and lead these wonderful young men and young women and touch their lives by our example. As the song says, how will they know unless we tell them? And maybe we could add, how will they know unless we show them? Every leader and every teacher in every part of the world has a responsibility to teach the gospel by the Spirit. The boys and girls you teach have the potential to become the outstanding fathers and mothers as well as revered Church leaders of the future. May you visualize each one of them in their important future callings. Some teacher, somewhere, is indeed teaching a young boy who someday will sit in these seats as he serves as the Lord's prophet. What a marvelous opportunity is yours! And now to you, my young friend, with the tie. Yes, it is you, you and the millions like you. If you prepare well, you will be the faithful mothers and fathers in the Church and the Lord's future leaders. You will be the teachers and leaders that will continue to establish the Church throughout the world. And you will want to look in the mirror probably periodically and remind yourselves of the great mission that lies before you. And perhaps... You might even want to wiggle your tie just to remind yourself of your important mission ahead. May you stand straight and noble in your callings. I pray that you young people will develop a reverence for sacred things, a respect for your elders, and a willingness to keep the commandments. I pray that you will learn to know of the Savior and have an ever-growing understanding of His Atonement. I ask the Lord to help you throughout your life to join your testimony with those of today's living apostles and and prophets, who declared, and I quote, We bear testimony as His duly ordained apostles that Jesus is the living Christ, the immortal Son of God. He is the great King Emmanuel who stands today on the right hand of His Father. He is the light, the life, and the hope of the world. His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. God be thanked for the matchless gift of His divine Son 
To this I testify and witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you think it possible to those of us who are called upon to speak to draw attention away from this wonderful building long enough to focus on the purpose for which it was built? Perhaps it can be done with a parable and a poem. The parable. A merchant man seeking precious jewels found at last the perfect pearl. He had the finest craftsman carve a superb jewel box and line it with blue velvet. He put his pearl of great prize on display so others could share his treasure. He watched as people came to see it. Soon he turned away in sorrow. It was the box they admired, not the pearl. The poem. We are blind until we see that in the universal plan, nothing is worth the making if it does not make the man. Why build these buildings glorious if man unbuilded goes? In vain we build the world unless the builder also grows. In thinking of the builder, we begin half a world away and two millennia ago on the River Jordan with John the Baptist. He preached, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Then came Jesus from Galilee to Jordan and to John to be baptized of him. When Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus then went into the wilderness. Lucifer came tempting him. Jesus deflected each temptation with scripture. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Think on it carefully. When facing perdition himself, the Lord drew upon scriptures for protection. Jesus chose from among his disciples twelve whom he ordained apostles. Peter, James, and John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, Simon, James, Jude, and Judas. They were ordinary men, described by the Pharisees as unlearned and ignorant. The twelve followed him. He taught them. He commanded them to teach all nations, baptizing all who would believe. Before he left, he promised the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you of all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Jesus was crucified 
On the third day he rose from the tomb. He gave further instruction to his apostles, and then, before he ascended, he said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endowed with power from on high. That power was not long in coming. On the day of Pentecost, the twelve were assembled in a house. Suddenly there came a sound of rushing mighty wind, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. With that, the twelve were fully empowered. When they spoke that day, the people marveled, for each heard it in their own language, eighteen different languages. The apostles set out to baptize all who would believe on their word. But baptism unto repentance was not enough. Paul found twelve men who had already been baptized by John the Baptist and asked, Have ye received the Holy Ghost? They replied, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. They were then baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul laid his hands upon them, and the Holy Ghost came upon them. The pattern was set as it had been from the beginning. Entrance into the Church of Jesus Christ is through baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. Then, in a separate ordinance, the priceless gift of the Holy Ghost is conferred by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances. Despite opposition, the Twelve established the Church of Jesus Christ, and despite persecution, it flourished. But as the centuries passed, the flame flickered and dimmed. The ordinances were changed or abandoned. The line was broken, and the authority to confer the Holy Ghost as a gift was gone. The dark ages of apostasy settled over the world. But always, as it had from the beginning, the Spirit of God inspired worthy souls. We owe an immense debt to the protesters and the reformers who preserved the scriptures and translated them. They knew something had been lost. They kept the flame alive as best they could. Many of them were martyred. But protesting was not enough, nor could reformers restore that which was gone. In time, a great diversity of churches arose when all was prepared. The Father and the Son appeared to the boy Joseph in the grove, and those words spoken at the River Jordan were heard once again. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Joseph Smith became the instrument of the Restoration. John the Baptist restored the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. 
Peter, James, and John restored the office of apostle with the higher priesthood. With it came authority to confer the supernally precious gift of the Holy Ghost. On April the 6th, 1830, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was organized. The brethren set about to teach and to baptize. Nine months later came a correction, a revelation. Thou didst baptize by water unto repentance, but they received not the Holy Ghost. But now I give unto thee a commandment, that thou shalt baptize by water, and they shall receive the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, even as the apostles of old. One month later, that commandment was repeated. On as many as ye shall baptize with water, ye shall lay your hands, and they shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The gift is to all who repent and are baptized, boys and girls alike, women and men the same. We live in troubled times, very troubled times. We hope, we pray for better days, but that is not to be. The prophecies tell us that. We will not, as a people, as families, or as individuals, be exempt from the trials to come. No one will be spared the trials common to home and family, work, disappointment, grief, health, aging, ultimately death. What, then, shall we do? That question was asked of the Twelve on the day of Pentecost. Peter answered, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He told them, This promise is unto you and to your children and to all who are afar off. That same question, What shall we do? was asked of the prophet Nephi. He gave the same answer that Peter had given. Take upon you the name of Christ by baptism, then cometh the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. Do you not remember that I said unto you that after ye had received the Holy Ghost, ye could speak with the tongue of angels? Angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. Behold the words of Christ. will tell you all things what ye should do. Wherefore now... After I have spoken these words, if ye cannot understand them, <clears throat> it will be because ye ask not, neither do ye not. Wherefore ye are not brought into the light, but must perish in the dark. For behold, I say unto you, that if ye will enter in by the way and receive the Holy Ghost, it will show you all things that ye should do. We need not live in fear of the future. We have every reason to rejoice and little reason to fear. If we follow the promptings of the Spirit, we will be safe, whatever the future holds. We will be shown what to do. Christ promised that the Father would send another comforter, 
even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Too many of us are like those whom the Lord said came with a broken heart and a contrite spirit at the time of their conversion, and were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. Imagine that. And they knew it not. It is not unusual for one to have received the gift and not really know it. I fear this supernal gift is being obscured by programs and activities and schedules and so many meetings. There are so many places to go, so many things to do in this noisy world. We can be too busy to pay attention to the promptings of the Spirit. The voice of the Spirit is a still, small voice, a voice that is felt rather than heard. It is a spiritual voice that comes into the mind as a thought put into your heart. All over the world, ordinary men, women, and children, not completely aware that they have the gift, bless their families, teach, preach, minister by the Spirit within them. In every language, the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost guides or can guide every member of the Church. And everyone is invited to come and repent and be baptized and receive this sacred gift. Despite opposition, the Church will flourish, and despite persecution, it will grow. Joseph Smith was asked, How does your religion differ from other religions? He replied, All other considerations are contained in the gift of the Holy Ghost. It is awakened with prayer and cultivated by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. It can be smothered through transgression and neglect. And soon we learn that the tempter, the adversary, uses those same channels of the mind and heart to inspire us to evil, to laziness, to contention, even to acts of darkness. He can take over our thoughts and lead us to mischief. But each of us has agency. Ever and always light presides over darkness. The priesthood is structured to ensure an unbroken line of authority to baptize and confer the Holy Ghost. Always nearby are leaders and teachers called and set apart to teach and to correct us. And we can learn to sort out the promptings from the temptations and follow the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. It is a glorious time to live, no matter what trials await us. We can find the answer to that question, what shall we do? We and those we love will be guided and corrected and protected, and we will be comforted. He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. As surely as I know that I am here and you are there, I know that Jesus is the Christ. He lives. I know the gift of the Holy Ghost, a sacred spiritual power, can be a constant companion to every soul who will receive it. I pray that the witness of the Holy Ghost will confirm this testimony to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.